If you like what you hear, come and visit me at youtube.com slash tiptoe the tank and see this content in all its glory. Before records of time were kept, before the events of history held prominence, the one called the Elder God crept into being. From whence is unknowable, but they would be the cause of all to come. Under its control would be the concept called the Wheel of Fate. The wheel could govern the cycle of birth, death, and rebirth that the fledgling inhabitants of this land would observe. Their souls would not be allowed outside of it, as the wheel of fate sustained the Elder God's very existence, whether literally as though it fed upon the wheel, or through metaphor that to deny it meaning was to deny it in existence is unknown. But this selfish Elder God demanded that the wheel continue to turn. The beings that walked the lands called Nazgoth were the ancient vampires, the Hilden, and the fledgling humans who were of no consequence to their more powerful cousins. These ancient vampires were a far cry from what one might imagine a vampire to be. These ancient ones were regal, winged, nigh-angelic beings that honored the Elder God and the ever-turning wheel of fate. These dignified, mortal people were the most influential of Nazgoth. Their very identities based around their adherence to the will of the Elder God. The Ancient Ones reveled in ideals of birth, death, and eventual rebirth. But eventually, the Hilden, a beautiful, proud, and technological people, rebelled against this message and their worship. The Hilden did not wish to be a part of the Elder God's Wheel of Fate and refused to obey the words of the Ancient Ones. But so unflinching in their ideologies were the Ancients that eventually war came to Nazgoth. For over 1,000 years they fought. The vampire Hilden War tore this world apart. With each passing century, the violence and atrocities escalated, even as numbers began to dwindle. The Hilden desired to create a device that would kill all the Ancient Ones with a mere thought. But before this terrible technology could be completed, the Ancient Vampires created the Pillars of Nazgoth. These pillars were tied to the very energies and life of the land and acted as direct reflections of it. The Ancient Ones imbued them with their powerful magics. Each of the nine pillars took on an aspect of Nazgoth. Nature, mind, dimension, balance, time, states, energy, conflict, and death. Using the pillars, the Ancient Ones banished all the Hilden from Nazgoth, delivering them to the Demon Realm. But as the Hilden were being banished, they cast a punishment over the Ancient Ones, the Blood Curse. No longer would the Ancient Ones fall into the Wheel of Fate. They were granted immortality, and they were made sterile. Cut off from their Elder God, their cycle of reincarnation would have been terrible enough, but that they could also not reproduce was more than some could take. Many of the Ancients began to seek death at their own hands. Their societies began to crumble under the weight of losing their future. But some were able to find purpose in smaller vampire tribes and communities, while others turned to the Pillars of Nazgoth as their purpose. The vampires, the architects and masters of the pillars, were the only ones still yet suited to act as its guardians, overseers, and protectors of Nazgoth. For the lands yet thrived, the young humans that were beginning to blossom still required these ancient ones to help them grow, and the pillars had to be safeguarded to keep the Hilden locked away in the demon realm. So each of the pillars of Nazgoth chose its own guardians. The magics within each pillar claimed their own protectors, each selected upon birth. But herein lies a complex dilemma. Because the Ancient Ones could no longer reproduce, the only beings that could be selected at birth to eventually act as the Guardians were human beings. Therefore, human beings were selectively given the Blood Curse to join the ranks of the Vampire Clans. Throughout the ages to come, the Ancient Ones gradually lost power and sway over Nazgoth. Their numbers were slowly dwindling, yet they did not madly assimilate humankind. 
As each guardian eventually died, as was inevitable, their replacement was marked at their birth and the pillars would carry on incomplete until the replacement came of age. But the weakening strength of the ancient vampires led to humans coming to power in Nazgoth and eventually they rebelled against the ancient ones. They rejected all forms of the blood curse and began to look upon them as vile creatures. Humanity did not intrinsically possess the ability to tame the powers of the pillars and the immense abilities each humanoid guardian came to possess was not really meant for them. They risked being unable to control the ancient magics from so long ago, and if the human guardians failed to maintain and protect the pillars, then Nazgoth would fall too, the Hilden could return. Over the centuries, locked away in the demon realm, the Hilden too changed. They became misshaped beasts of terror. They longed for revenge against the Elder God and the Ancient Ones. The greatest champion amongst the Hilden ruled over them, and schemes began to brew to return to the lands that they once called home. The Hilden and the Ancient Ones both harbored prophecies that they would again return to conflict, and their chosen warriors would fight on their behalves one day. But still, despite prophecy, the Hilden continued to fight on to reclaim what was once theirs, and the Ancient Ones too did their best to prepare for that day. A human swordsmith called Vorador crafted the Ancient Ones a weapon, the Reaver. Like the Pillars, it too was infused with the magics of the Ancients, but in a far different way. The Reaver was thought to be indestructible, and whether the Ancients or Vorador himself knew it or not, it could answer the needs of its champion. Yet its very potential was still unknown in those far long days. The blade was kept safe and secret amongst the Ancient Ones. For creating this mighty sword, the human Vorador was granted the Blood Curse. He joined them as a vampire and became an outstanding force amongst his new kin. Life for vampires eventually equalized. Though they were still tribes and clans scattered amongst Nazgoth, not nearly the mighty empire of old, they never sought to increase their numbers dramatically by feeding upon humans. It seemed that there was a relative peace and stability between them. But as modern times drew closer, things began to occur which would upset that delicate balance. A seer prophesied that from the north would come an army which would lay waste to Nazgoth and bring about the end of civilization, the Legion of the Nemesis it was called. This was a fear that ever loomed over the land, yet as the centuries passed, no such enemy presented. Because the guardians of the pillars were humans, the health of the pillars of Nazgoth were beginning to wane. The number of vampires that yet remained in Nazgoth troubled the guardians. They had long ago rejected the blood curse and the rule of the vampires, seeing them as a potential threat to mankind. So, fanaticism entered the circle. The Order of the Seraphim was created, led by the Guardian of Conflict, a man named Malik. The Seraphim were crusaders and hunters of the vampires. A terrible slaughter was brought upon the Ancient Ones, and one by one, the elders amongst the vampires were killed, and all that carried the blood curse followed. It was horror, criminal, and brutal. The vampires of Nazgoth were quite similar to humans, a far cry from monsters, but still the Seraphim raided their villages and murdered them without a second thought. The only ancient one to escape the slaughter was Janos Audrin. Janos well knew the histories of the war, of the Reaver, of the prophesied champions of the vampires and the Hilden, of the apocalypse the legions of Nemesis would bring, but the Seraphim believed that Janos Audrin was the father of what they called the Vampire Plague, and that killing him would end their bloodline. Perhaps he was the one who discovered how to pass the blood curse on to humans. Perhaps he was a kidnapping thief that enslaved human guardians to vampiric will. Perhaps he was an enemy to mankind in this age and time. The doubt that would be cast on those things didn't matter. The Seraphim hunted Janos down eventually and cut his heart from his chest. The Seraphim called it a relic, the heart of darkness. 
They believed it could restore or create vampiric unlife. In response to the terrible deeds of the Seraphim, the now-aged vampire called Vorador, the very creator of that sword called the Reaver, descended upon the Guardians of the Pillars. He found the Seraphim stronghold and began to slaughter all within, including six of the nine Guardians and leaders of the Seraphim forces. But left alive was Malik, the Guardian of Conflict and the central leader of the Seraphim. Malik was left humiliated and shamed for failing in his duties. And as a punishment for his failure, the guardian of the Pillar of Death, a man named Mortanius, fused Malik's very soul into a suit of armor. All pleasure of the flesh was taken from him, and he was given one purpose, to protect the two surviving guardians and the predecessors for the dead ones that would one day appear. The martyred commanders that died during Vorador's rage-fueled invasion were laid to rest within an honored tomb. What vampires remained went into hiding, and the Seraphim were disbanded. But this was not the end of the Guardians, for upon each Guardian's death a child was born that was marked to precede the dead Guardians. Eventually, they came of age and fulfilled the empty positions. But the Pillars of Nazgoth and the land itself were already falling sickly. In the north, William the Just came to power. He was quite young when he became king, but he was a kind soul, destined for great leadership and he was well loved by his people. That is, until a strange man named Mobius came to his lands. Mobius spewed hateful rhetoric in the streets that centered around vampires, what few remained. And he became so popular amongst the people that it garnered him an audience with the boy king, William. Mobius, though, was actually the guardian of the Pillar of Time. Alongside Mortanius, he had survived the slaughter that Vorador brought to the Seraphim Hold. For untold centuries, he had been the guardian of time and he was extremely powerful in his age, on top of being quite wily and unpredictable. Mobius had a plan for everything and he had manipulated his way into the trust of William the Just. We will return to the fate of William the Just, but in the meantime, a character of note was born after a terrible betrayal took place. The guardians of the pillars were weakening in power with each new generation. The binding that kept the Hilden trapped in the demon realm was weakening because of this. Remember, the Guardians were originally meant to be vampires, not humans. The Hilden Lord began to exert control over some humans, and he targeted the Guardians when he finally had the strength for it. The demonic Hilden Lord targeted Mortanius, the Guardian of Death, and possessed him. The Hilden Lord forced Mortanius to murder the Guardian of Balance, a woman named Ariel. The moment Ariel died, her replacement was born, a babe named Cain, who would live an unremarkable life in the comforts of a nobleman's house. But Cain was marked from birth to one day be Ariel's replacement as the guardian of balance, and that will matter later. Ariel was the lover of Nupraptor, the guardian of mind, and when he found the corpse of the woman that he loved, Nupraptor lost his mind. He became maddened, and that madness seeped into all other guardians. The insanity that consumed them all forced them to turn their powers against Nosgoth itself. And while that included Mobius, the guardian of time, to what extent is hard to say for him. Mobius was a bit of a backstabbing bastard to begin with, a backstabbing bastard that started having dealings and deals with the elder god the ancient vampires once served. You see, they had a deal that Mobius would serve the Elder God, and in return, the Elder God would ensure that Mobius returned to life if or when he died. Bit of a bastard. But back to the north, Mobius, the guardian of time, began to warp William the Just, the beloved benefactor of the land. Mobius began turning him into a cruel, war-seeking monster eventually called the Nemesis. 
William the Just became the apocalyptic force that the ancient seer had once foretold of. When Cain reached adulthood, rumors of a great foe rising in the north were swirling about Nazgoth, but he didn't really trouble himself with it. Life was just too breezy free for that sort of thing. While he was completely unaware of his destiny to become a guardian, Cain was coming of age and he would soon be called to the pillars to become the guardian of balance. Unfortunate that the guardians by this point were completely batshit insane. The maddened guardian of death Mortanius sent a group of assassins to track down the young nobleman. Mortanius was racked with guilt for killing the former guardian Ariel and still yet haunted by the influence of the Hilden Lord. In a misguided attempt to make things right, he saw the murder of Cain as a necessity, and death would not be the end for the young nobleman. No, Mortanius had plans for Cain and for the healing of Nazgoth. The assassins sent to find Cain were vicious. While traveling, Cain was refused service at a tavern on the roadside. He was forced back out into the falling of night, and the assassins cornered him and murdered him. It was a cold, devious affair. And in death, an indignant rage began to fuel Cain. He longed for unobtainable revenge. And at this perfect moment of suffering, Mortanius appeared to him and offered Cain a second chance at life, at unlife. And Cain didn't hesitate, he didn't question anything, he just said yes to the necromancer. Unbeknownst to Cain, not that it would have mattered, Mortanius put into his corpse the Heart of Darkness, the still beating heart of the ancient vampire Janos Audrin. For centuries, the Seraphim had kept it as a holy relic, and now Mortanius put it to use, delivering Cain into vampirism and the blood curse. When Cain awoke in a crypt, he immediately set out to find his killers and take his revenge, discovering and embracing his new thirst for blood along the way. When he reached the surface, he found that sunlight and rainfall drained him, and he knew that in time those afflictions would only worsen. But as he pushed on, his lust for vengeance was stronger than his initial weakness to the outside world. He found his assassins and he killed every one of them. Yet, once this quest for vengeance was over, Cain had no purpose. He had traded his death for a few moments of bloodshed without weighing what that truly would cost him. But he needed not worry or think over it too deeply because Mortanius was there to guide him. He pushed Cain forward, telling him that his assassins were not really the cause of his death. Cain should look to their masters, to the pillars of Nazgoth. And so once again, without question, Cain obeyed. As he went, Cain killed all that he came across and terrorized the countryside. While once the Ancient Ones, the vampires of old, were seen as more akin to humans, Cain acted as a monster. He cared very little for his deeds and only sought his own satisfactions. Everyone would suffer for what a few had done to him, at least that's how he saw it. When Cain arrived at the pillars, night was fallen and an apparition haunted the grounds. It was the spirit of the slain guardian, Ariel who could not find a peaceful death until the pillars were restored. When Ariel offered to Cain answers to his questions, he refused her, saying that he only wanted a cure for his new affliction. Yeah, well, that didn't take long, did it? But Ariel very bluntly told him that there was no cure for this. He was dead. He walked in unlife. His only release would come in release from this form. His former life was over, never to be obtainable to him again. But if he destroyed the sorcery that was now plaguing Nazgoth, as she put it, then he could find peace. She tasked him with killing all the guardians and returning their artifacts to the pillars so that balance could be restored. Cain agreed to this, not realizing that he himself was a guardian. His first hunt would be for Ariel's beloved, Nupraptor. On his journey across Nazgoth, Cain obtains new powers, weapons, magics, and armor to aid him in the obstacles to come. 
Though the majority of his kills are the innocent, he'll need all the help he can get when he intrudes upon the sanctuary of his foes. When he finally reaches Vasterbunt, the small city nearby Nepraptor Sanctum, there are echoes of pilgrims and villagers going missing nearby. And it's not difficult to believe, it's truly foreboding. When inside, Kane finds what the Guardian has been doing with all those that journeyed to visit this place. They're chained to the walls, tortured, their minds torn apart and induced to madness, just like Nupraptor himself. In his solitude since Ariel's death and the maddening of the circle, he began self-mutilating and sewing his eyes and mouth shut. The squandering of life didn't seem to really bother Kane. It was the waste of blood that bothered him more. When finally he tracks down the Guardian, Nupraptor is in the process of rejecting the aid of the one called Malak, the once leader of the Seraphim who failed to stop board or slaughter of them so long ago. As punishment, his spirit was put into a set of armor. Nupraptor himself will face Kane, though the illusionist was a shell of his former self, maimed, small, and weak. But he used his strange mind magics in his stead, using them to fend off the vampire, but it didn't work for long. Eventually, Kane saw through his tricks and ended the insane guardian. Kane cut off the head of Nupraptor as proof of his kill and took the macabre trophy back to the Pillars of Nazgoth. Placing it into the Pillar of Mind, Nupraptor's former charge, the head sank into the pillar and was cleansed of corruption. Kane definitively deemed that all would find their absolution through him. Next, he would find Malak, whose keep was to the north. Traveling north takes Kane to his once homeland, which has been ravaged by the horrors of a plague. Rumors of its existence began years ago, but these lands weren't ready for the reality of such pestilence. In his absence, it spread like wildfire through his homeland, and the dead were left to rot in the roads. But once again, Kane's concerns weren't for his fellow countrymen, but rather for the blood being wasted. Kane has nothing left but contempt for his former home. His attitude towards humanity as a whole has soured extremely fast. He has no kind words or memories to spare for those who have suffered so greatly during Nosgoth's decline. Lest one think Kane a hero of any sort, remember his cold indifference and willingness to victimize those most defenseless. It is not until he reaches the snowy tops of the surrounding hills that he spots Malak's fortress, built high in the mountains in a dead and cold land, where no life could hope to flourish, a befitting place for a man such as him. Taking the form of a bat, Kane flies to the distant landmark and begins his search for the Guardian Malak. Here, the Guardian has taken diffusing the souls of the dead into suits of armor, much like what was done to him, a process that Kane is highly judgmental of. Malak's home is formidable and challenging to proceed through, but Kane finds the bodiless Guardian eventually, past a throne room, holding Malak's old corpse. But something here is quite amiss, at least for Kane it was. He couldn't kill Malak. He was forced to flee the fight after some time, acknowledging that he could not do what needed to be done. At Ariel's behest, Kane begins to search out the Oracle of Nazgoth, a complete unknown to Kane. He goes to where this Oracle should be and finds a network of caves hidden within a mountain. The Oracle himself is deep within, hidden away from the world, but he's not quite who he seems to be. This trickster is playing a game, but his identity will be kept secret for now. The Oracle tells Kane that King Otmar is his only hope for defeating the legions of Nemesis. It's a bit out of left field and not really related to what Kane is pursuing right now, and he disregards the old man's babbling. Instead, he asks about Malak and how to defeat him. The Oracle tells him a bit of Malak's history and his failure to protect the circle from the rage of Vorador. It is he that Kane must speak to. Vorador's abode is within the Termogent Forest, and it is a most hellish place. The Oracle vanishes before Kane can progress his questioning, manipulating him down a path towards another vampire, a very old and powerful one. And without a second thought, Kane sought Vorador. 
He knew legends of the ancient baying, and it made sense that if anyone knew how to destroy Malik, it would be him. He found him to the east in a righteously gaudy and tacky mansion. Bordor lives in seclusion, with only his own vampiric thralls to serve him. But it's an absolute luxury, and after all, why not? His people are mostly gone, few comforts of the world remained, and what did he care for the suffering of the lower class? Humans. Ew. Cain cuts his way through Vorador's victims and thralls alike, finding the Ancient One in the heart of the estate. And when he saw Vorador, he saw himself and what he was to become. He was the very visage of terror and cruelty. But Vorador welcomed Cain into his home as a kindred spirit. He sees them as gods, and he welcomes Cain as such. Humanity is meant to be their fodder and their servants, and Cain rather takes to agreeing with this sentiment. Vorador brags of the slaughter of the six guardians and the defeat of Malak. Since the downfall of the Circle, vampires haven't bothered with the affairs of humans. What few possibly remain have vanished and treat mankind like cattle. Vorador advises that he does the same, don't get involved with the problems of their lessers. He gifts Cain a ring, and promises that if Cain should ever need Vorador, this ring will summon him. As Cain journeys back to the fortress of Malak, he sees to the north that something is beginning, a plot to twist the land. A dome of energy is taking form on the horizon, and the necromancer Mortanius calls to him that this is his vengeance, that it lies to the north. A triad of the guardians are there, and Cain just can't resist dropping in. Without question, he begins approaching that strange dome and the guardians nearby. The closer he draws, the more cool perversions of nature appear. Cain believes that the dome is the cause of it, though really the fate of these creatures doesn't concern him. Entering the dome led him to a dead, fiery land. Within it was a tower, spewing the energy that was changing the lands. Certainly, this was to be Cain's destination. Though it was a harrowing trek to make, Cain eventually entered the tower and found that the interior was far larger than it should have been. It too was a creation of magic, and making his way through the twisting corridors would be a test of his patience and his stamina. Within its center, he finds the three, Guardians of Energy, Nature, and States. After their quick exchange of greetings, the Guardian of States, Anacroth, summoned Malak in his stead and fled the arena. But in return, Cain called upon Vorador to aid him. The two vampires destroy the three guardians together. Vorador handled Malak, and Cain cut the other two down. Already, four of the guardians were dead, and soon, the fifth would follow. Next, Ariel directs Cain towards Azmuth, the planer, at the heart of Avernus. When he arrives, he finds the land to be in complete chaos. Azimuth's madness was destroying this region, and when he finally arrived at the city of Avernus, he finds violence has led to countless deaths. So many victimized that there's no one to take the bodies out of the streets. Cain finds that the ones who have been doing the killings are demons. Azimuth has summoned forth forces from the demon realm, where the Hilden reside to slaughter her own people. But the Cathedral of Avernus, where Azimuth resided, was left untouched. High within, through waves of thousand obstacles, Cain finds something of great interest. The Reaver, the legendary blade, rumored to be capable of feasting on the souls of those it strikes. Cain takes it without question or thought. He sees it as a kindred spirit meant to be with him. With new blade in hand, Cain finds Azimuth, and she's all too willing to fight him, though she will not do so alone. Azimuth has demons at her call, and her own powerful magics pack one hell of a punch. She uses them against Cain with great effectiveness, but once her demons are destroyed, Azimuth herself has few physical defenses to stop Cain's blade. She was cut down, and now four guardians remain. Returning to the Pillars of Nosgoth and cleansing Azimuth's pillar, 
Ariel discloses that Azimuth used a time-streaming device to summon those demons from across times and realms, a device typically in the employ of Mobius, the guardian of time. She gives it to Cain and tells him to take care of it, as in time it will be his deliverance. She, like the Oracle, talks of the legions of the Nemesis up to the north. They've begun their march on Nazgoth and are destroying all in their path. Ariel rushes him on to Willendorf, where he will find his path to the next guardian. Though uncertain as to what he is doing there, Cain proceeds on, finding that the farther north he goes, the more panic there was. The populace was aware of the impending legion and knew well the terrors that it would bring, and some question what has become of their king, the Lion of Willendorf, who does nothing to bolster their defenses against the nemesis. Under the guise of a nobleman, Cain travels to and through the city to the stronghold of King Otmar. Within the castle, Cain found a man completely unconcerned with the well-being of his people and without thought for the legions of the nemesis. King Otmar only cared about his daughter. On his daughter's birthday, he held a competition amongst his people to see who could craft for her the finest doll. The winner was an unhinged man named Elzevir, who created a doll so beautiful that all were captivated by it. For payment, Elzevir requested a lock of the princess's hair. Immediately following this, the princess fell into a coma. The king only cared that she be cured, and any who returned her to him would have all the kingdom for themselves as a reward. So, Cain decided to follow this path for some time. He would find this Elzevir the dollmaker and uncover what was done to the princess, so that he could garner the favor of the king. Perhaps best to oppose the legions of Nemesis anyway, how could he complete his mission with a war raging across the land? If Ariel spoke truth and this path led him to the next guardian, then he would see it through. The journey to the Dollmaker's abode led him through a tunnel system, then the Legion of Nemesis, but Cain found Elzevir at the Lake of Souls in a creepy-ass mansion patrolled by animated dolls of Elzevir's making. Once Cain tracks the Dollmaker down, he tries to defend himself with hordes of his strange dolls, claiming that the soul of the princess was his, that King Otmar gave it to him, that he earned it. But even the flood of dolls attacking can't stop the mighty vampire. Not even their stuffing of fluff can oppose him. Cain kills the doll maker and finds the doll holding the soul of the princess in the next room. Returning the doll to the court of King Otmar grants him favor. The court sorcerers will be able to restore her to the absolute joy of the king. In return, Cain is offered the throne, but that is not what he desires. He instead tells Otmar to send his army to intercept and vanquish the Legion of Nemesis approaching from the north, to which the king agrees. But this is no fairy tale. The king dwaddled for far too long, and the armies of Otmar were far from enough to stop the Legion. They were completely run down in the fields, but they made enough of an opening for Cain to slip through their line into enemy territory. He fed off of both sides as he went, consuming his fill from Horde and Hope alike. But when he finds himself surrounded by hostility on enemy soil, Cain finds that there's no safety or hiding here, and he uses the time-streaming device that he obtained from Azimuth. It sends him back in time, 50 years into the past, when the land was peaceful and flourishing, when William the Just was still young and uncorrupted. But the time-streaming device was broken on the jump, Cain was stranded. Killing a guard at the border to the kingdom of William the Just grants Cain a memory from his victim. It's a strange old man preaching in the streets about the dangers of vampires and that their very existence in this time was a threat that mankind needed to snuff out. He used twisted logics to make his points, but the populace just ate it up. It garnered him an audience with the king eventually, but Cain does not recognize this man, at least not yet. He fights his way deeper into the region, finds a landmark that cues him into where and when he is, 
and by the time he reaches the fortress of William the Just, he logics that if he kills the boy king, then the nemesis would never be made and Nosgoth would be safe from the threat to the north. Before falling upon his prey, Cain overheard the young king talking to someone that he called Mobius. It was the same strange man that had been yelling at the crowds about the dangers of vampires, and he was here now warning the king of a vampire assassin that would soon descend upon him. Mobius plays the part of the unthreatening old wise man extremely well, and he promises the young king that when he needs him, when the time is right, he will be there. He gives to William the Reaver. Now, two versions of it exist in the same place, and this is no accident. Mobius has been planning this all along, but Cain is completely oblivious to what is taking place here. Once William is away from Mobius, Cain doesn't waste any time in attacking the king. He's a vicious foe and he has bodyguards, but Cain ends the life of William the Just using the Reaver. But William too has the Reaver. This sword is fused with the magics of the Ancient Ones, and this will have consequences. The flow of time in Nazgoth is not so kind or malleable, a saving grace for this and the tales to come. For things to be changed in the past, a most spectacular condition has to be met, and the magics of the Reavers, plural, did just that. The two Reavers meeting in the same place from different times created the Reaver Paradox. It did allow for time to be altered, these two weapons meeting like this. So yes, William the Just was stopped, the nemesis never created, but it would alter Cain's proper time to reflect this change, something that otherwise should not have been possible. But Cain was completely oblivious to the impossibilities of what he had just done, and how convenient that just beyond William's room was another time-streaming device. It's all just been so simple for Cain, hasn't it? He prefers to call it fate, not something to be contemplated too deeply. Using this second, conveniently placed time-streaming device returns Cain to his proper time, and to his horror, he finds that things have indeed changed. William the Just died a martyr, the nemesis never existed. And in those 50 years, the man called Mobius rallied the people of Nosgoth against the vampire murderer of William the Just, and another crusade began against all remaining vampires. As Cain walked the foothills of this land, he passed the corpses of his fellow vampires left to rot in the wilds. Back in civilization, he came across a public execution, and the victim was his once advisor and aide, the one called Vorador. He'd almost single-handedly torn down the old guardians and the Seraphim, and this was to be his end. But cleansing this region of vampires would not be the end of their conquest. There were wider lands in Nazgoth, and they would continue their hunt and their purge. And it was none other than Mobius that would lead them forth. And now Cain is kind of starting to put things together. He sees now that the Oracle of Nazgoth was in actuality Mobius, the Time Streamer, the Guardian of the Pillar of Time. Mobius has led him down this path to end all the vampires, to make the land fully hostile to his kind, to come into power over the Circle and all of mankind. It has all just been handed to Mobius so easily. Mobius, who serves the Elder God and has no fear of death because of promised resurrection should he die. Oh, how little Cain realizes. Even as he fights the throngs of humans and then Mobius himself, he has no idea how futile it really is. Mobius has seen the past and can reach into the future. Mobius himself turned William the Just into the nemesis. Mobius played Cain into villainizing all remaining vampires. Mobius has survived so much and now possesses all the pieces to this weird, complex puzzle. But Cain does what he thinks is necessary to end this threat. He decapitates Mobius, sending the Time Guardian's soul to the embrace of his master, who will see their servant restored as much as necessary. But Cain thinks that he's attained victory. 
and will now carry on as though this be truth. Mobius shall be set aside, all thought fled from him for now, his part in this journey played out for the time being. Mortanius, his longtime guide through all of this, the one who gave him unlife, the one who put the heart of darkness inside of him, is just so very happy to hear of Mobius's death. All has gone as he wished. He calls upon Kane to return to the Pillars of Nosgoth so that the finale may finally begin. Upon his return to the Pillars, Kane does not make his presence immediately known. The Guardian of States, Anacroth, who once fled from battle with Kane, is berating Mortanius for his scheming and his plotting. Kane overhears that Mortanius was responsible for the assassins that killed him, responsible for his resurrection, responsible for setting him down this path. Yet still, Mortanius is the fool of Mobius. What a duo Kane and the Guardian of Death make. Yet the corruption that had so destroyed the circle made Mortanius think it all necessary. That he had won and outsmarted everything in play. Mortanius and Anacroft come to blows at the height of their argument, resulting in the death of the Guardian of States. Now only two Guardians remain. Now is time for Cain to make himself known and for this all to end. For his mission to be complete, Mortanius must die and Cain has little reason to ally himself with the Guardian anymore. But Mortanius welcomes this. He gladly enters into combat with Cain without fear of death. Mortanius is a vicious fight and does not hold back in this insanity. The two fight all about the Pillars of Nosgoth, but as Cain is seemingly fated to do, he strikes down the Guardian of Death upon the sacred grounds. But that is not the end. It's all according to plan. From the body of Mortanius comes a new foe, the dark entity, the Lord of the Hilden, returning to the realm it once called home. With the other guardians dead, the binding that kept back the demons was so weak that the Hilden Lord was able to pass through his servant into this realm. Cain and the Dark Entity fought between and amongst the pillars, the Hilden Lord able to pass through spaces to be invisible and invulnerable, making it a game of patience and awareness to intercept him before his devastating attacks. But again, as Cain seems fated to do, he banishes the Dark Entity back to his demonic realm, freeing Nosgoth from his control for now. But it's time for Ariel to disclose the full truth of Cain's being to him. She tells him that he is the final guardian, the guardian of balance. He too is corrupted. And that for his mission to be complete, for Cain to find true peace, he must also die. Then she too will be able to rest and the pillars will be restored. Nosgoth will be safe once again. One day, new guardians would come of age and see to its future. But first, Cain had to die. But why? Why should he? Why couldn't he decide the future of this land, forsake his mission, take the Pillars of Nosgoth as a throne for his own future? Cain denies Ariel her rest, denies Nosgoth a future, denies himself the oblivion of death. All would be done at his whim. He accepted that the words of Vorador were true, that vampires were as gods amongst humanity and were meant to be served. He would take it as his duty to thin the herds of mankind that plagued Nosgoth that had caused so much suffering and so much mayhem. Vampires would return and take their rightful place as gods and rulers of Nosgoth. Now, nothing would stand in his way. He would decide his own fate. While that is the conclusion of this story, it's not the end of this tale. Cain will no longer be the protagonist at our lips. Cain would indeed build his new world amongst a new breed of vampire and at his side would be his lieutenants raised from a crypt of sacrilege. The next to rise and carry on this tale will be someone new. Next, we will know the stories of Raziel.